Good morning. I'm Scott Fredrickson. I'm an elder apprentice here at North Shore Church and uh, very excited to be here and um, I welcome all you today and anyone who's watching online as well. Well, it's a girl. <laughs> praise God. Yes, praise God. We have a healthy baby girl. It was not an easy uh, pregnancy by any means and I will share with each of you later on, uh, whoever wants to hear our story, uh, it's Nothing we couldn't have done without uh, God and nothing we couldn't have done without you praying for us and we felt those prayers. Kim and I are so grateful for our church family and we love each one of you and we are uh, it's just eternally grateful for that because uh, we needed all the prayers we could get and uh, we appreciate that very much and all your generosity that y'all have given us. Um, uh, well, let's start. We have a reading today back to uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, verses uh, 1 through 23. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belong to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight my lord, the king. When King David came to Berum, there came out of a man a family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jurah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right side and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Jeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zeruah? And he said, Cursing, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abidashai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed him as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom 
and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. <clears throat> and when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Live long the king. Live long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, This is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen. His I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son, as I have served your father? So I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what, we, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of Israel. Now in those days the counsel of Ahithophel gave was, was as if one counseled the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. And this ends our reading. Let's pray. Lord, today we recall your faithfulness. Thank you for your walk with us every day, that you are with us always. We proclaim that your promises are true and your goodness and love never fail. In this moment, we come to you and lay our lives before you. May we honor and worship and adore you with every fiber of our being, Lord. Father, we proclaim that you are holy, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Your beauty and majesty are beyond compare on this day. We join with all those who worship and confess you as Lord and celebrate your greatness and splendor. Lord, we adore you and we love you. Lord, today we ask for, for healing on our church. We, we pray for Rob Lobbs that uh, his cancer can be uh, completely eradicated. We, we pray for Joe Wells that he can continue to heal from, from uh, home. For Warren and Donna that you give them perseverance, strength, healing, and wisdom. We pray today for John Hickson, uh, that his uh, lung functions would improve. For Jeff, uh, Jeff's mom, uh, Mary, that you would rid her cancer, heal her body, and give her peace. We pray for Anna Ross today, that her affliction doesn't uh, turn into MS, God. We just ask for your mercy. We pray for all the doctors and medical staff who are working with each and every one of these people and others in our church who are suffering from ailments and, and, uh, and, and stress of different sorts, Father. Heal those that are going through all kinds of trials on this day, Lord. God, we ask that, that you be with Pastor Duncan as he, as he brings our message this morning, that his words would be your words. Father God, strike anything that isn't true, that, that we may see the gospel clear in, in, uh, in our minds. We ask that you we protect us from our wandering thoughts today, that we can just truly worship you and that your son can be made much of. God, we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Scott. We've just spent four weeks on messages about the afterlife. And so now, as you doubtless know, we've come back to 2 Samuel 16. And I can imagine if you're here today as a visitor 
and you hear all of these weird names in this bizarre story, you're thinking, why did I come today? But I really do believe when we contextualize a little bit and help you see what's happening in the larger context, I think you'll be able to catch on to what's going on here, so don't be discouraged. This is obviously in 2 Samuel, so we're looking at the life and reign of King David. When we left David in chapter 15, the chapter before this, he was in the midst of the darkest season of his life as king. This dark chapter really began back in chapter 12 when he sinned with Bathsheba and all of the rest that went with that. Even though the events in this chapter may at first seem quite unrelated to the sin of David with Bathsheba, we'll see that David is very much connecting the dots between his sin and the trials that he's going through in this chapter. Now, we don't want to misunderstand. God had forgiven David of his sin, and he'd released him from the death penalty that his sin deserved. He said, I'm putting that sin away in that sense. But through Nathan the prophet, God had prophesied that as king over God's people, there would be for David continuing hard consequences as a result of his sin. Part of this is just as anyone who commits a sin like adultery knows, even when you receive forgiveness of God, there are painful consequences that endure long after that. Nathan makes it clear in David's case that these consequences were an expression of God's punishment of David because he was king. The prophecy is in chapter 12, verse 11, just to review, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So in chapter 16, what we're seeing is the explicit fulfillment of this prophecy. When we see... David in verse 1, and this is very important to get a context here, he, his wives, his family, and a small group of loyal followers are with him on the way away out of Jerusalem because he's being exiled as king. David's son, Absalom, has deceitfully won to himself the hearts of most of Israel away from David the king. So this is a coup. And as David is making his hasty exit away from Jerusalem, Absalom, along with some of David's traitorous advisors, are moving into Jerusalem to complete this bloodless coup. So that's really important for us to understand. This chapter has some parallels with the one that preceded it. You may recall that in chapter 15, as David begins his exile out of Jerusalem, David meets three loyal friends, Ittai and Hushai, or Hushai and Zadok. They're all there for David as he's coming out, and they express their loyalty to him, and they say, we're coming with you, David. Well, in this chapter, we see three other men, and these men are not friends of David because, as we'll see, they betray David and they attack him in some way. Ziba, Shammai, and Ahithophel are three very different kinds of villains from one another here in chapter 16. When Ziba, in the first three verses, we meet him, we're introduced to Ziba, first of all, back in chapter 9. He was the servant of the son of Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was David's closest friend. 
Jonathan was the son of King Saul, who preceded David and who died in battle with his father. This son of Jonathan was a man who was crippled in his feet, and his name was Mephibosheth. David had given the land and property of King Saul to Mephibosheth as a tribute to his late friend and father, Jonathan. Now, if you didn't understand all that, you're still fine. I'm just giving it for background. Because Mephibosheth was crippled and not able to live independently, David made Ziba, who we meet here, he'd formerly worked for King Saul. He made, he made him the servant of Mephibosheth. So Ziba, along with his family and some servants, they got on the land and they served Mephibosheth and they farmed his land for him. And when we meet Ziba here in this chapter, Ziba has come to David and his fellow exiles loaded down with supplies for them. It was a generous gift, but the king is suspicious and asks Ziba about Mephibosheth, who is the one he'd been so kind to. Where is your master, Jonathan? Where is your master, Jonathan's son, which was Mephibosheth? So he's saying, where's Mephibosheth? David obviously wonders why. Ziba is there, but Mephibosheth is not. And Ziba's response is in verse 3. Behold, he, Mephibosheth, remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So Ziba's making an outrageous claim here, isn't he? Ziba claims that Mephibosheth wasn't with him because he saw this coup attempt by David's son Absalom as an opportunity to seize back the throne from David for the family of Saul. According to Ziba, Mephibosheth had turned against David in the hope of using the chaos of the coup to return to the throne. Most reliable scholars are at best skeptical of Ziba's story. He's lying through his teeth here. This is mainly because the claim that Mephibosheth was seeking to use Absalom's coup as an opportunity to return the monarchy to Saul's family, and more specifically to him, that's incredibly far-fetched. The momentum in the shift in Jewish loyalty was toward David's son, Absalom, who for four years had been working to con the favor out of the Jews. Mephibosheth has been completely out of sight out of the political spectrum for years. He hasn't had anything to do, and he's shown up to this point zero propensity to be hungry and ambitious for power, okay? So this is really not a very believable story. Beyond that, the commentators all rightly ask, if Ziba is so supportive of David, why didn't he bring the supplies and then join David with the rest of the loyal followers with David? Because if you stayed in, there was the assumption that you weren't with David. So whatever the case, whatever was happening here, David believes Ziba's story, and he makes a very rash judgment. He says to Ziba in verse 4, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth, is now yours. Now, the king certainly has the authority and the right to give the land of his predecessor to whoever he chooses. But this decision is not at all consistent with either Jewish law or Jewish wisdom. The law says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So David completely blows this legal principle off. 
On the testimony of one witness who is far from objective, he makes a ruling that costs the crippled son of his friend Jonathan everything that he given him. Now we can't be too hard on David because after all he's in exile and he's obviously under great duress at this point. What we can say is that before his sin, the author goes out of his way to portray David as the man, the kind of man who irrespective of circumstances, because if anybody's cool under pressure, it's David. David worked diligently to do the right thing all the time. Contrary to the former ways of David, David makes an impulsive decision here that he almost certainly comes to regret later on. We know that because after the coup fails, Absalom does not succeed in this coup, and as David is coming back into Jerusalem, Mephibosheth meets David. And we'll get into that, but he gives him a very different response and story than what they heard from Ziba, and his response is much more credible than Ziba's is. And it indicts Ziba as a liar. In response, David amends his ruling here that was so rash in chapter 16, but rather than say, okay, I'll give it all back to you, he says, split the difference. I'll give half of it to you, Mephibosheth, and half of it to Ziba. So Ziba still makes out pretty well in this arrangement. He still gets a lot of property. Again, the author wants us to see that David is just not at his best here. And as we've repeatedly seen since his sin with Bathsheba, his comparative dullness compared to what he used to be seems to be part of the consequence of his sin because he really does act like a bit of a different person. After he finishes with Ziba, Dave, David has this very dramatic encounter with this incredibly angry man, Shammai. The most important detail about Shammai is that he's a man from the family of the house of Saul. So we see the house of Saul again entering into this. There was a man from King Saul's family, that's Ziba, or I should say Shammai, and though Saul has been dead for 20 years at least at this point, those who were loyal to King Saul hated David. And so those who were loyal to King Saul ultimately divided away from David and his family and formed Israel. David and his family had Judah later on. They wrongly saw King Saul's downfall, not as the hand of God, which we know it was from the scriptures. They wrongly blamed David for the fact that Saul had been killed in battle. So now that David has been exiled from the throne and has lost his official power, Shammai takes the opportunity to vent his rage and attack him. So he throws not only stones at this exiled group and David, he also hurls continual curses against David. In verse 7, he says to David, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Literally, the word he uses there that he calls David is Belial, a man of Belial. And that word communicates such profound wickedness that later on in Jewish history, it came to be used as a word for the devil. The NIV translates it scoundrel. The point is, this is just about the worst thing that you can call a Jew. Shammai has let his bitterness over David's perceived injustice towards Saul's family to horribly embitter him. But it's not just that. His bitterness has caused him to understand David's exile as a curse from God upon David. And there's a moral lesson here, a very quick one for us. Because we, like Shammai, 
wrongly can take what is really a personal grudge that we have against someone and spiritualize it. We can mistake our hurt feelings as a ground to make spiritual judgments against those who have wronged us. We can easily turn a personal offense into a cause for righteous indignation. All of us have at some point done this. And we drag God into something that is not at all about God and his judgment. It's just some wrong that somebody's done to us. That's what Shammai was doing. In the first place, he completely misinterpreted David's relationship with Saul. He's all washed up about that. David was not at fault. Saul was the one at fault in his death. But he also spiritualizes David's alleged offense, and he mistakes his own personal grudge against David as the judgment of God. He's really messed up here. And that magnifies for us the power of David's response to these curses from Shammai. David could have responded in the same way that Abishai does. Now, Abishai is his nephew, and he's also one of the military leaders of Israel. He's the brother of Asael and Joab, right? Abishai, Abishai says in verse 9, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That's the way these people were. Joab and Abishai, they're men of blood. David could have done that legally. Exodus 22, 28 says, You shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. Reviling God is blasphemy. It was a capital punishable sin by death. And the author equates reviling God with cursing the king. So they're on the same level. And the reason is because God is the one who anoints the king. The king represents God. So to curse the king that God has appointed is to curse God. And so this was punishable by execution. David would have been perfectly justified to let Abishai go cut off his head. But instead, listen to this really curious response that David gives to Abishai. But the king said, what have I to do, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son seeks my life. How much more? Now may this Benjamin leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, this can be very confusing for us because on the one hand, David clearly knows that Shammai was sinning against him in what he was doing. He says in verse 12, this is a wrong done to me. So he knows this is wrong and that perhaps even that the Lord would repay him for this wrong. So he's not under any misapprehension here or misunderstanding here. He knows it's wrong. He knows he's being sinned against. But on the other hand, he also realizes that this curse, even though it's coming from a bitter heart and for the wrong reasons, may still be a part of God's judgment on him. Now remember, David knew very well, even though Absalom was personally responsible for his betrayal of him, there's a bigger, larger spiritual picture, which we saw from chapter 12. And that was that God was ultimately behind this betrayal from his family member and was in fact part of the punishment that David was enduring because of his sin with Bathsheba. David was also familiar with something we're mostly not familiar with, and that is, what does the Bible teach about curses? 
The Old Testament has many texts and many stories where curses figure prominently. The story of Balaam, for instance, where Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, and God says, don't you dare curse Israel, meaning that curse meant something. Today, when we hear the word curse, we think of profanity. And if a curse is ever spoken of within the context of witchcraft, most of us write it off as meaningless hocus-pocus. Oh, you cursed me. Well, that's an anti-supernatural bias we're bringing. It doesn't square with the record of Scripture, where curses are treated very seriously as destructive sources of real spiritual power. I worked with Satanists who were coming out of the occult for 20 years, and I can tell you curses are real, and they do carry power. David knew that thanks to his sin with Bathsheba, he was under God's punishment and that this curse might be part of God's judgment on him for his sin. So David rebukes Abishai because he believes that Shammai, even in his blindness, even in his bitterness, may in some way be speaking as God's agent of judgment to him. So he refuses to shop, stop Shammai from continually cursing him and pelting him and the others with stones and clods of dirt. This is a powerful testimony that whatever else may have been true of David at this time, he was sensitive to God and even humbly submitting to what he knew he deserved from God. He's not defending himself. He's not retaliating against Shammai for these curses. Instead, because he knew he was deserving of the curse of God, he's allowing himself to be publicly humiliated by this enraged man. In his humble submission to God's will, David reveals something about his heart. He is a different man than he was with Bathsheba. In verses 16 to 19, we see David's advisor, Hushai, the archite, embed. He's embedding as David's spy into the inner circle of Absalom, as David had earlier commanded him. Absalom is initially skeptical that an advisor of his father's, who had been so loyal to David, would now betray him and come over to him. Verse 17 says, And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. And Hushai, of course, is lying here. Hushai engages in a bit of clever, veiled communication here in his greeting in verse 16 where he says to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. He's almost certainly not blessing Absalom who he'd pledged to bring down. Instead, in veiled language, he's pledging his loyalty to David as he begins his espionage for him. In chapter 15, David had commissioned Hushai in his espionage to accomplish two goals. First, he charged him to frustrate the counsel of this brilliant man, Ahithophel, who we read about in verse 23. Now, in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So 
Hushai was commissioned to keep the supernaturally wise counsel of Ahithophel from being followed, to get in the works there some way. Second, David had called Hushai to gather intel or intelligence as to what's going on within Absalom's inner circle and report back to him through these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, who David had also commissioned as his spies. And we'll see the effectiveness of this spy network next chapter. The final conversation in this chapter doesn't involve David, but the author shifts to the camp of Absalom, the traitorous son. And he gives us an important window into how Absalom's government was going to function. Notice verse 20, as Absalom and his people, they're coming into Jerusalem to assume the throne. We read, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your counsel, what shall we do? There's a pretty high degree of dependency here. Absalom is clearly not running the show here. He's heavily dependent on David's old counselor, Ahithophel, to dictate the strategy. He doesn't just ask his opinion on a specific question. He's open-ended here. Give me your counsel. Or, okay, now that we're here, what do we do? Ahithophel knows exactly what to do, and so he decisively counsels Absalom in verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is precisely what it sounds like, okay? So this is, this is at least PG-13 rated here. This is a very strange strategy as the first act of a man who is usurping the throne of his father to publicly sleep with his father's concubines. And concubines were like wives. They had legal rights as wives, though didn't get to participate in the life of the royal court. But essentially, they were people that would propagate the line for whoever the king was, and they were his harem. They were part of his status symbol. It's important for us to know that in the ancient Near East, this was a legitimate way of asserting your right to the throne in a political coup. More importantly, concubines, who we said have some rights as wives, and that's why this is the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before all the sun. So this sexual sin against David is retribution for David's sexual sin against Bathsheba. That's the spiritual picture that's in the background here. Because only the king had sexual access to these women, this open display of immorality was a way of declaring in the Asian Near East that there is a new king in town and he is assuming the unique privileges of the king. More than this, this was an incredibly powerful way for a son to publicly humiliate his father. Because under Jewish law, this was committing adultery with his wives. And we know from other places that David had at least 10 concubines. But this act doesn't just tell us how effective Ahithophel was as a counselor. This was certainly also a very effective way of achieving many objectives with one act of defiance. It also reveals to us that Ahithophel's problem wasn't just his betrayal of David because you have to remember Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel 
and David had messed up the granddaughter's life. And so there is a personal piece here that Ahithophel is bringing to this, but it reveals something else. It reveals that what was ultimately at the heart of Ahithophel's betrayal is his own rebellion against the God of Israel. And we know the state of Ahithophel's heart toward God, not only because he betrayed God's anointed king, but because the law of Moses is clear about sleeping with your father's wives. Leviticus 20 verse 11 says, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There's a lot here. That means that what Ahithophel is counseling, first of all, Ab Absalomadu is a capital crime. Okay, this is punishable by death. But it's worse than that. Incest in the Old Testament often incorporates this phrase, uncovering your father, uncovering your mother's nakedness, okay? What does that mean? We can only understand this if we remember what the Bible teaches about the nature of sexual union in marriage as God reveals it back in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this one flesh terminology is not a romantic metaphor describing marriage. This is much more technical. This means that in a real and profound way, when a husband and wife come together sexually, a spiritual relationship is formed where they are some way united or one flesh. The implication of that here is profound. That means that when a man has sex with his father's wife and uncovers his nakedness, this is very serious. That is, when Absalom was having sexual relationships with David's wives, in some way, he was also relating sexually to his own father because of the one flesh relationship. That means that if David had 10 concubines, Absalom is committing incest with David 20 ways. This was a completely disgusting thing for Absalom to do, and that is precisely why Ahithophel counseled him to do it, to cause him to be a stench to David. This also leaves no doubt that this traitorous counselor to David is in profound rebellion against God. Okay, that's the story. <laughs> that's a lot to take in. So as we close, let's briefly think about some application. This is one of those stories as it relates to application. If you're reading through it on a Tuesday morning, as you're reading through the Bible, and you read this story, you close the book and you say, okay, I think I get this. On the way out of Jerusalem in his exile, David meets two losers, and Ahithophel helps establish Absalom as the new king by giving him some disgusting advice. And where's the blessing for me? <laughs> What do I possibly get from this? There is a big spiritual truth here, and it's an important one. I think the main spiritual truth here is that, that's very helpful, is found in how David responds to Shimei's attack. Okay? David knew, as we said before, that Shimei's attack was misplaced. He hadn't killed any members of Saul's family. What he affirms, though, is that he deserved the curse of God, and what he was experiencing could very well be an expression of God's judgment on him for his sin. In other words, David was living with a healthy awareness 
that he was deserving of God's judgment. And having that awareness is a good thing for the health of the believer. And I don't just recite that without biblical support. Jesus teaches that truth precisely in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, which means that after you read it, you say, I can't believe Jesus said that. So listen and be amazed. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what happens here is a couple of tragedies, natural disasters and one, one not natural disaster, a couple of tragedies that happened in Israel, and they were well known among the Jews, and they came up and they talked to Jesus about it. First of all, Pontius Pilate, who frequently is made out to be some kind of tragic figure, but who disproves that totally here, Pontius Pilate had murdered a number of Jews from Galilee, and he'd apparently taken their blood and placed it on the temple altar along with their animal sacrifices to God. So this is utterly blasphemous. But in addition to that, the Tower of Siloam, which may have been in Jerusalem, had collapsed, killing 18 people. And what caused Jesus to bring up these tragedies is because the Jews believed that these calamities were God's way of bringing his judgment on the victims of these tragedies. Get it? They're assuming that because this happened to these people, that's the judgment of God on these people. Jesus strongly rebukes them, but not for the reason you're thinking. Jesus strongly rebukes these people, but curiously, he does not accuse them of grossly misrepresenting these events. In other words, he doesn't say, you got it all wrong. This isn't a judgment of God. He doesn't say that. Instead, he gives these people some very strong teaching about the justice of God. He tells them that they should not be focusing on the possible link between the sins of these people and their tragic deaths. He says, that's not where you should be going with this. He tells them that they should instead focus on the much more amazing truth that God, in his mercy, continues to allow them to remain alive despite their sin. That's what he's saying. That's a hard saying. He takes their interpretation of these events, that these people were terrible sinners and so therefore God killed them, and he applies it to them. In verse 3 and in verse 5, so he repeats it twice, so this is important. Now I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Gulp. Okay? The underlying theological truth is that as sinners, we all deserve God's judgment, and he would be fully justified in exacting it at any moment. That's what Jesus is saying. And in light of that truth, what should astonish us about God is that in his amazing grace and mercy to us, he continues to allow us as sinners to live. R.C. Sproul calls this teaching the misplaced locus of astonishment. 
In other words, they're astonished at the wrong thing. They're astonished that these people died for their sins. And what they should be astonished at is that God continues to allow them as sinners to remain alive. Now we know from David's response to Shammai, he got that. He understood that. When Shammai curses him, he is so well aware that he deserves the curse of God, he is open to receiving it from Shammai and refuses to stop the curses because of his great sin toward God. And the point of application for us is reminding ourselves of our sinfulness and what we deserve from God can be very healthy spiritually. The reason I say it can be healthy spiritually instead of it's always healthy spiritually is because we need to make sure we're processing this correctly. We need to be aware of our sin and our need for God's mercy. That's enough. But it's also possible, and many Christians do this, to cross the line between, on the one hand, living with an awareness that we deserve the judgment of God, and then the gratitude to God that that fosters, and on the other hand, living with a misdirected sense of spiritual self-pity in the midst of our trial, okay? That self-pity looks at the trials of our life and like Eeyore the donkey says, that's all right, I deserve this because I'm such a loser. That's not what David is doing here. David is humbly submitting to God and acknowledging what he deserves because of his sin. David is dealing with the realm of God's justice. He's saying, I deserve the curse of God, and whether or not Shammai has all the details right, he may be acting as God's instrument of judgment. One commentator says it well. He says, David is simply acknowledging that Shammai is absolutely justified in thinking that God had cursed him. One of the many reasons for living with this healthy awareness of our sin, and there are many reasons why this can be a good thing, and one and our deep need for God's mercy is this. When we experience trials, one of Satan's main temptations toward us is to use our pain to embitter us. And there are people in this room that have been hurt and you've processed it by becoming bitter either at God or other people. And that's satanic. Satan wants us to be embittered first toward God for being so unfair to us, and second, toward other people who brought on these unfair trials. The fastest way to embitter someone against God is to convince them that God is guilty of an injustice toward them. You're suffering X, you don't deserve this. Or so-and-so did X to you, you're completely undeserving of that. One truth that sucks all the destructive spiritual power away from those temptations is living with the awareness that no matter what you're suffering, you really deserve far worse. Because we all deserve hell at this moment. Jesus said that. For many years, C.J. Mahaney used to respond to the question, how you doing, with far better than I deserve. And Dave Ramsey and other people have picked that up. Now, even though that can be misused in ways that are not helpful, that's a true statement. We're all doing better than we deserve, and it's good for us to remember that that's so that we'll never forget how blessed we are to have received so much of God's mercy. 
living with that awareness that we deserve far worse than we're receiving for our sins against God can and does insulate us from bitterness when we suffer. David lights our way onto that path in chapter 16. Now what keeps this awareness of our sin and how deserving we are of God's just judgment from becoming overwhelming to us or leading to unhealthy responses like self-pity or self-hatred and obsession over what dirty, filthy, rotten sinners we are, what keeps us from being out of balance is the cross of Christ. The truth is, apart from Christ, sinners, all sinners, are under the curse that comes on people who fail to keep God's law perfectly. Because that's the standard. A plus, 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 plus. Everybody that doesn't meet that standard is under the curse of God. The good news of the gospel from Galatians 3.13 is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The minute Jesus got on that cross, he was under the judgment and curse of God because that's what the law said. If you were hung on a tree, crucified, you became at that moment under the curse of God. So David reminds us that it's a good thing to live with an awareness of what we deserve from God. But the son of David came to spare us sinners from what we deserve. He releases sinners or he releases believers from the curse of the sin that we so richly deserved because he who in no way deserved God's curse chose to take that curse upon himself on the cross. Jesus became accursed of God in our place as our substitute for all those who placed their trust in him. He took the curse we do deserve so that we could receive the love of God we don't deserve. That's the gospel. How do you respond to that? Have you seen that and said, that's what I want? I trust in that. I receive that for me. Because I believe I am a sinner, and I believe I do deserve hell. If the standard is perfection, I'm nowhere near that. And so, are you a person who receives that? Or are you a person who just turns away and says, I don't care. Beware. Jesus said, you deserve far worse. If you do not repent, you will likewise perish, Jesus said. For believers, the point in all of this is we have to be balanced, don't we? We must never become obsessed with or overwhelmed by our sinfulness and the justice we deserve from God. That paralyzes us. But if we don't live with an ongoing, healthy awareness of what we deserve, then the cross will lose its power in our lives, and our joy and our gratitude to God will be vaporized. May God give us the grace to appreciate more and more the mercy of God in Christ that saves us from the justice that we in our sin deserve for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, how beautifully this text in 2 Samuel 16 preaches the gospel to us. We're just so grateful, God. Father, if there's people here today who you've spoken to, and you've convinced them in their heart that they're in trouble and they need a savior. God, I'm grateful that you sent your son to take the curse that they deserve. 
And Father, for those who have, through no, through no praise of their own, by your grace have seen that and received you as Savior. Father, for those of us who are in that boat, I pray that you would give us the grace to live with a healthy sense of the awareness of our own sin and how much we deserve your judgment, not for the purpose of self-destructive thoughts, but so that that can be leveraged into praise and worship for how much you've done for us. We don't know how much you've done for us until we realize how much we needed done for us. Father, help us to see the truth about our sin so that we can see the truth about your grace and mercy. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.